I'm excited uh, for today. We've got a word that I believe is from the Lord, and we got an awesome man of God delivering that word. Luke Nickel, come on up here. Uh, yeah, I, when I was talking with Luke, uh, Luke leads our kids ministry and he's just awesome. He and his wife, Jordan. Um, but when, when I was asking Luke, Hey, what, what do you believe the spirit of God is speaking and putting on your heart to share? Uh, I just was like, yes, it just so resonated. This is, this is a word of the Lord to us and to many of us individually. So I believe this is going to be powerful. I'm going to pray over Luke and join me as we start. Father, thank you for Luke and we, we bless him as, as, as uh, he is going to bring this word to us. We pray, God, move through him, speak through him, and the word that he has stored up in prayer and study of your word, let it come forth today. And Father, we open our hearts to hear from you. We honor the word of the Lord, and we ask God, speak to us. God, speak to us through your word as you always do, and God, keep our hearts soft to hear what you want to say to us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to be together. Happy New Year. Uh, everybody's New Year's resolutions off to a good start. Day two. Okay. couple people. I love this time of year. I genuinely, genuinely do. I love hearing about people's New Year's resolutions. <laughs> That's a little freaky, uh, but no, I do. I love hearing about how people are planning on bettering themselves. It, it gets me all excited. Some of y'all were probably like, this is the year. This is the year I start flossing, and you came in this morning with your gums all bloody. Way to go. <laughs> it's going to be a great year, but truly, I get, in, I get inspired hearing about resolutions. I get inspired hearing about the goals that you all have. Uh, for this new year, because I think there is a healthy type of introspection that the Bible calls us to, where we stop and we take stock of our lives and we assess, hey, do we like how we are living? Do we like the people we are and the people that we are becoming? You know, I think the Bible calls us to do that in places. It says, redeem the days, uh, because the days are evil. So there's a sense that we need to make the most of our time, so that way we can honor God and we can love people. And New Year's is that nice kind of built-in rhythm where we stop and we do that collectively. And as you do that, uh, I know some of us might be filled with a lot of hope as you think about this new year and all that could happen in 2022. But I also know that for many of us, as we stop and we pause and reflect on this past year or the past several years, you cannot be help but be uh, filled with shame and regret. Because you look at the past several years and you, you don't like what you find. And I'm not talking about uh, just, you know, something like, oh, I didn't meet my goal. I wanted to read 50 books, but I only read 45. No, I'm talking about like deep, deep shame, deep anguish over the lost years. I'm talking about the years where you didn't walk with God. I'm talking about the years where you had broken relationships and you were uh, separated from those you love most dearly. Talk about the years that were just lost to addiction, the years where the trials that you faced, uh, they did everything but crush you, and that's all you can remember from that year. Talk about the years where the highest aim you had in life was to simply please yourself, and at the end of it, you just felt more empty. I think we all can resonate with that, maybe to varying degrees, but we all can agree that we have wasted time in our lives that we cannot get back. And I believe that God wants to speak to that place in our souls today. 
See, there is this incredible promise that God speaks to his people in Israel in Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, verse 25, it says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locusts ate. See, God is making a promise to his people that he is going to restore back to them all of the squandered years, all of the squandered time of their life. It can sound almost too good to be true. But before we get there, we need to pause. We need to back up so we can understand what's happening when God spoke this promise. So that way we can hear this promise for ourselves and receive it for ourselves. So if you have a Bible or a phone, feel free to turn to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. Joel is located in the Old Testament. It's right after Hosea and right before Amos. It's a small little book. It only has three chapters. Uh, you don't hear about the book of Joel that often. It doesn't get preached on uh, that often in church, but it is a great little book that has a lot to teach us about God and what God is like. And like I said, it's only three chapters, so if you've never read it, you can knock it out today. You can knock it out quickly, and I highly recommend reading it, especially if you've never read it before. And one reason you should definitely read it, especially if you've never read it before, is because Christians, we believe that all of God's people are going to live in the new heavens and new earth for eternity. And eternity is a very long time. So at some point, you will probably run in to the prophet Joel. <laughs> and it will be awkward to have to explain to him that you never read his book. You know, you'll be there, and you'll be getting to know each other, and it'll be going great, and he'll be like, hey, by the way, what'd you think of my book? And it's heaven, so you can't lie. <laughs> and you'll just have to say, well, you know, I, it was on my list. I just never got around to it. And he'll probably remind you, it was only like three pages. And you'll have to say, I know. I know. I don't want that for y'all. So check out the book of Joel. Also, Joel is part of the Bible, and all of the Bible is given for our doctrine, for our reproof, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. So there's that too. So anyway, okay, the book of Joel. So Joel was a prophet to Israel, meaning that he was somebody handpicked by God to speak on God's behalf. And we don't actually know a whole lot about the prophet Joel. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. So we know his dad's name was Pethuel, and that's literally all we find out about Joel. We don't know what he was like. We don't actually even know when this book was written. We don't know what was happening in Israel at the time uh, when this book was being written. All that we know is that God's people had sinned and rebelled in some way. And the reason we know that is because God is judging them. And God has selected a very interesting method for judging the people. God is judging his people by sending a swarm of locusts, a bunch of bugs. And this swarm of locusts is described in chapter 1, verse 4, saying, What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. So God in his judgment, has sent waves and waves and waves of these locusts, and they have devoured all of the food in the land. In fact, elsewhere in the book of Joel, it says that the trees here were white because they had stripped away all of the bark. So what that meant is there was no food to eat. 
There was no food to feed animals. The land and the people were in a state of total desecration. It was just a wasteland. Now, some of you might right now be thinking, see, that is why I don't like reading the Old Testament. It's all this judgment. And that's you. Stick with me because there's more to the story. But it is worth pausing to ask, well, what is it that the people did to deserve this? What did they do to incur God's judgment on them? And the simple answer is, we don't know. It's a valid question to want to know. Maybe we want to be able to justify this story to our skeptical friends, or maybe we want to justify this story to ourselves. Or maybe you're sitting there saying, I hate bugs, I just want to make sure I don't make the same mistake. But the short answer is, we don't know what it is that the Israelites did to prompt God to send this locust plague. What we can be sure about is that when God judged his people, he always did it with an intention. See, God isn't up, he's never just flown off the handle at the drop of a hat, just getting mad like, whoa, I didn't know that would make you so mad. No, rather, what we read in the Bible is that the people of God, despite having no reason to turn away from God, would consistently forget about all that God had done and all that God had promised to do, and they would turn their own way. And they would try to live life on their own. They would disobey and break God's commandments again and again and again, despite being warned that when they did, it would not go well for them. And in response to this total rebellion, what God would do is he would try to woo them back to himself. He would invite them to come back to him and come back to his ways. Because it was only when the people followed God's leadership did their lives work properly. The biblical idea here, the the word for this concept is shalom, which means peace. It is things working as they were always intended to work. And there is no shalom apart from God's leadership because God, as the creator of everything, that's how he designed it. It's literally written into the fabric of creation. Christian theologian Cornelius Plantinga Jr. I know. What a name. I love that he's a junior. His dad's like, I'm having a son. I want him to have what I have. The joy of going through life as a Cornelius. My apologies if your name is Cornelius. Anyway, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. writes, God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. He goes on to say, sin hurts other people and grieves God, but it also corrodes us. Sin is a form of self-abuse. So when the people continue to rebel against God, their lives would start to break down. And then God would invite them to return to him. But the people were stubborn, like we are stubborn, and they would double down in their ways, and they would turn, turn off their ear to God. But then God would invite them again and again and again. But the people got really used, they got so used to tuning out the conviction and instruction of God that the only option left was to use the megaphone loud enough to ensure that his message got across. And so God sent Locust to tell his people that you have been corrupted and sin is robbing you of the life that I desire for you. 
You see, I believe God was really intentional in sending locusts as his means of judgment. He had a lot of different means that he could have chosen from. He could have sent an army from another nation. He could have sent lightning or something like that. But he chose locusts. He chose a swarm of bugs. Why? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible, there's one other story where God uses locusts to judge people. It's an exodus. Swarm of locusts is one of the ten plagues. And it's almost like God is saying to the Israelites here, hey, you remember those cruel Egyptians that enslaved you all those years? You're becoming like them. God saw the tragic trajectory of his people, and he loved them too much to stay idle. So he used the method and the means to ensure that his uh, message got across. And so the people finally turn their ear to God. God finally has their intention. And when they look around, they see the desolation, and even they, these stubborn people, can't pretend like they haven't messed up. And so now that God has finally had their attention, finally has their ear, he gives them instructions. He tells them to grieve and to mourn over their sin. He tells them in chapter 2 of Joel, starting in verse 12, Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. God is inviting his people here into repentance. Now, if you heard that phrase, tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and you're confused, uh, let me explain. So back in that day, it was common for when someone was experiencing heartache or loss, uh, like if you had a loss in your family or anguish, they would tear at their clothes as an expression of uh, their anguish, of their hurt. And this uh, practice would often, it could happen uh, in the people of God as a form of lament when they would hear about how the people had uh, broken their covenant with God. And so they would do this as a sign of lament that they were sad over their sin. Now, obviously, we don't do that uh, in our day and age. It would be odd if we were here on a Sunday morning and Pastor Mark says something convicting. You got Lou Ferrigno over there ripping his shirt open. For some of y'all, that Lou Ferrigno is the guy who used to play the Incredible Hulk, and he would tear his shirt whenever he would transform. Uh, but anyway, so what God is saying here is, hey, I want you to do the work of repentance not just do what looks like repentance. It appears that the people, it was possible for them to rip at their clothes, but their heart not be engaged in the process. And if we're honest, we can do the same thing. We can be sad that we are caught in our sin, but not really sad at our sin. Or we can agree that our ways are wrong, but never actually turn to God's way instead. And that's not what God wants. God is desiring true repentance. God is inviting them to do the true act of repentance. He's prompting it because repentance is a gift. And here's where it gets really good. God is prompting his people to repentance. Why? So they could just be sad he wants them to be all bummed out. No, God is prompting his people to repentance because he longs to be gracious. Repentance is a gift because it is God's avenue for being gracious to us. God longs to be merciful. Something really important is happening 
right after God calls his people to repentance. Picking back up in Joel chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. It reads, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. See, what is happening here is God is describing himself. And this description of God is the most often repeated description of God in the Old Testament. You see, it comes out of Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, Moses, at that time, he's praying and he's saying, God, I really want to know what you're like. I want to see you for who you really are. And so out of that prayer, he gets an encounter with God clearer than anybody had ever had prior to that point. And out of that encounter comes this description. Gracious compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting in sending calamity. You see, this is God describing who he is at his deepest core. If I were to pass out pens and paper and I said, okay, you have five minutes, I want you to describe yourself in like eight words, the deepest part of who you are. This is God's answer to that prompt for himself. God's default disposition is that of grace and compassion. God can, and he does get angry, but he has to be provoked to anger. Gracious and compassionate, though, that's who he is at his core and who he longs to be towards us. Judge is something that God has to do. Showing mercy is something that he wants to do, that he longs to do. See, we read this story of locusts, and we think that God is just up here waiting to punish us for the smallest little thing. Like, he's looking down. Gotcha. Oh, I'm going to nail you. No, it's not like that. What God is waiting with expectation to do is to respond to the truly repentant. He is waiting with expectation for us to turn back to him. Some of us today, that might be hard to believe and you, if you're really honest, might not really believe it. You look at your life, and you look at all the locusts have eaten, and all the wasted years, and you don't think that God can truly have grace and compassion for you. You know, some of you, it might have taken all the faith that you had just to show up this morning. And if that's you, I truly believe that God wants to reveal himself to you this morning. He is the gracious and compassionate God that is slow to anger and abounding in love towards you. And these aren't just pretty words from God. It's not just like some nice little poetry God says, but rather he backs it up. He shows himself to be true to this description, and he relents in sending calamity. He is merciful, and he takes away the punishment that we deserve. And we see this in Joel. So what happens, God prompts them to repentance because he longs to be gracious. And what happens when they repent? The locusts stop. There are no more bugs. Their food's not being devoured anymore. He shows mercy on the people. But he doesn't stop there, and he actually does even more than that. So if you've been around church very often, if you're uh, spent much time in Christian circles, you've probably heard the phrase grace and mercy uh, often. People will put these two terms together 
We'll say them often. They'll kind of roll off our lips. We'll pray it. Uh, we'll say, God, thank you for your grace and mercy. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer. But we use these terms together so often that it, we can kind of think that they mean the same thing. Like we're saying, God, thank you for that thing. And thank you again for that thing. But they're not. They're not the same term, and they don't refer to the same thing. You see, mercy is the withholding of the punishment or negative consequence that we rightly deserve based on, our, based on our actions. Grace is the giving of something that we haven't earned. So the people here, they had incurred God's wrath. God was right in judging them based upon their actions. And because of their rebellion, God sent locusts. But God was merciful, and he stopped it, and he withheld the locust. But God was also gracious, and he gave to them what they had not earned. And this gets us all the way back to the very beginning where we started to, back in Joel 2, starting in verse 25. It reads, I will repay you for the years the locust have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. This is the incredible grace of God. <coughs> See, God is promising something miraculous here. He's saying that, hey, those squandered years, those wasted years, I'm going to give them back to you. Well, how can this be? We all know time only marches one way, and it only marches forward. None of us can relive yesterday. None of us can relive this past year. None of us can relive this past decade. Once a day is done, there is nothing we can do to get it back. It's not like God is promising time travel here. No, what he's saying is the years the locust ate will be restored. What's worth asking can a locust eat a year? Not like a weird word problem. No, a locust cannot eat time. All they can eat is grain, food. What God is promising is that the fruitfulness that was squandered can be restored, given back by the grace of God. So for the people here in Joel, this meant that the literal crop that was being given back to them was the one that the locusts had eaten. As we discussed, their land was totally desecrated. All of their storehouses where they would store food, empty. All of their animals, just lean with hunger. All the people wanting more. But God delivered it all back to them. The starving people are being told, you are going to have more than enough. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, remarked in this passage, saying, by giving to his repentant people larger harvests than the land could naturally yield, God could give back to them, as it were, all that they would have had if the locust had never come. And God, by giving you larger grace in the present and in the future, can make the life which has so far been blighted and eaten up with the locust and the caterpillar and the palmer worm of sin and self and Satan, yet to be a complete, and blessed, and useful life to his praise and glory. It is a great wonder 
but Jehovah is a God of wonders. And in the kingdom of his grace, miracles are common things. Does that just stir your heart? It stirs my heart, and at the same time, I find it hard to believe. It can be hard to believe because we can walk through life with such a low view of God's grace. We can sometimes conceptualize mercy, think like, okay, <coughs> God is up there saying, okay, yes, I won't punish you, but just come on and keep quiet. But God's baseline disposition is not just merciful, but also gracious. And Christian, there is nothing that sin has robbed that God does not long to restore. Now for us, our situations are different than the book of Joel, but that doesn't mean that his heart isn't the same for us all the same. We haven't been judged by a sworn of locusts, at least I don't think any of us have. Uh, in fact, in 2 Corinthians, it says that since the coming of Christ, God is not counting our sins against us. So it is very unlikely that the situations of our life are the result of a direct judgment from God. But that doesn't mean that through our own actions or through our own inactions, we have not let loose locusts to the harvests of our lives. But that doesn't mean that God is not gracious. No, even here, God longs to be gracious. I can't read this passage and not think of this man named Lefty. Uh, Lefty was a man that my wife and I knew uh, back in Texas because he did the discipleship school uh, with her. And so uh, Lefty uh, <clears throat> was a great guy, and at the end of the year, the class and all their spouses had a little retreat, and everybody got up and they uh, shared a testimony about how God had worked in their life uh, throughout the year. And so it was Lefty's turn, and he got up, and something to know about Lefty, Lefty was an older gentleman. This is a couple years ago, and I believe at the time he was in his, <coughs> sorry, y'all. Uh, Lefty was, I believe, in his mid to upper 70s at the time. Um, and as part of his testimony, he was talking about, he just couldn't help but have this deep regret that he had lived so long apart from God. So he just started following God. And there was deep pain because he was glad to be walking with God, but he wished he had done it sooner. He could not help but feel that he had wasted decades upon decades, and that the locust had eaten up so much of his life. But then in this beautiful moment, he opened up his Bible and he shared out Joel 2, and how he had hope that God was increasing his fruitfulness. Yeah, Lefty had spent decades and decades apart from God, but in God's grace, he was giving those years back. Lefty had a vision that his 70s and his 80s and forever long he was here were going to be greater than he ever could have imagined because God is gracious. Lefty was filled with the love of God and he was envisioned to live a life on mission. See, Lefty thought he had wasted all of the good years in his life, but there is nothing that sin has robbed that God does not long to restore. All right, think about the woman who anointed Jesus at Bethany. Here is a woman that the people simply referred to as a sinner. She had a reputation so much that people were shocked Jesus would even be in the same room as her. We don't actually get that much description of her in the Bible, but the little we get is filled with, uh, just, it's heavy with heartache. 
of a life filled with sin and despair. The connotation is that <clears throat> this woman was most likely a prostitute who had only known use and abuse her whole life. If there was a category of someone whose life had been eaten by the locust, she definitely qualified. Yet here she comes to where Jesus is reclining at the table with a jar of perfume and eyes filled with tears. And she anoints Jesus and she washes his feet. An act of love so great that it is remembered wherever the gospel goes. This is a woman who people wouldn't even want to look at when she walked by, whose life was considered by all to be nothing but a tragedy. But who amongst us has ever gotten to love God like she has? There is nothing that sin has robbed that God does not long to restore. I'm truly praying that as we go into this new year, that our heart is filled with hope at what the grace of God can do in our life. For those of us here that feel that pang of regret over years not knowing God, the grace of God can deepen our communion with Christ. It's not always the people that have known God the longest that known God the best. For those of us that feel regret over years where we squandered spiritual fruit through either sin or just laziness, the grace of God can multiply our efforts, can multiply our seeds of 60 and 100 fold. For those of us that have shame or sorrow over the years where we had broken relationships, the grace of God can deepen intimacy for the glory of his name. I don't know exactly how God wants to work in your life, but I can promise you that he longs to be gracious and compassionate towards you. And as I end, uh, I just want to speak to one more group. There's the group that's sitting here thinking, that sounds nice, I wish it were true, but for me and my situation, it can't be true. And uh, I agree, there are some situations that it appears are just irretrievably broken. And if that's you and that's your situation, I just want to look a little far further in Joel 2. Because in Joel 2, after we hear about God restoring what the locusts have eaten, God promises that one day he will pour out his spirit on all people. It's like God couldn't contain his excitement at all that he had planned. Even in the midst of this miracle, even in the midst of him doing something miraculous, it wasn't enough. God's like, it's not enough to just give back the food, the locust day. He had a greater day in mind. And what God was anticipating was the coming of his son Jesus into the world. Jesus came to restore back all that sin had stolen. Jesus described himself as saying, I have come to seek and save the lost. And this saving work of God was accomplished by Christ dying lonely on a cross. The sinless one took our sins so that all who trust in him, God has nothing but mercy for them. And by faith, as we trust in him, the benefits of his righteous life are extended to us by grace, the grace and mercy of God. When Jesus rose from the grave, he inaugurated a new age, a new age where all who trust and follow him can receive the Spirit of God. And God fulfilled his promise, and he poured out his Spirit at Pentecost, and he even, they even quoted Joel 2 when it happened. And that Spirit is at work, and continues to be at work, and it will continue until the day that Christ returns. 
And I love the way my daughter's storybook Bible puts it because it describes the day when Jesus returns as the day when all bad things become untrue. And on that day, it will be like the locust never ate a single bite. And so God's grace, whether now or in eternity, will fully restore all that sin had stolen. And so I want us to, I want to invite you all to respond to the word of the Lord, however he is prompting you. Uh, I want to invite, if you're part of our prayer team, if you could be available uh, to pray with folks. For some of us here, maybe God finally has your attention, like he finally had the attention of the Israelites, and you're not sure what to do next. If that's you, we would love to pray with you. Or maybe you're being convicted of sin, and you need to truly repent, to tear your heart before the Lord. You can do that just at your seat between you and the Lord, but if you don't know how, if you need help, we would love to pray with you. Or maybe you need the gift of faith to truly believe that God's grace can restore things in your life, that God can truly give back the stolen years. If that's you, we would love to pray with you. Or lastly, maybe none of this applies and you've been patiently waiting for me to finish because you just need to talk to somebody and have them pray with you about something completely unrelated. If that's you, we would love to pray with you and figure out how to be the church for you. However you're feeling prompted to respond, I invite you to do so now.